Tate Robinson on. He's and there's goal of the season, Frank Murphy. Juliano Grazioli. Oh, absolute quality. I'm sure most people would say I was mad. Oh, Ryan Welcome to another episode of the Downhill Second Half Podcast. Joining me, Ian DL, is a man with data visualisation skills akin to that of the passing vision of Johnny Doolan in his underhill pomp. It's our podcast producer, James Harrison. Thank you, Ian. Hello, everyone. And alongside him, a man who had escaped my attention until a recent Google search isn't the worst lookalike shout for our former strawberry blonde midfielder, Stevie Searle. It's Mr Craig Clayton. Good afternoon, Ian. I didn't see that one coming, I have to say, but thank you. (laughs) All right, sir. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think he actually uh, didn't. He didn't he finish football to go work in the city? Actually, yeah, um, I thought there was a gag in there as well, but I've, uh, yeah, I couldn't decide what to go. The hair was the easiest one to go down the route. <laughs> and I'm delighted to welcome another great guest on today's show, starring in episode two of series two, one of the finest ever wearers of the bees number two shirt. Five seasons of service two playoff campaigns, the pain of a relegation, and in my memory anyway, the only Barnet player to ever have T-shirts produced celebrating the fact that people were there to see him score his first senior goal. It's Sammy Stockley. How are we doing, lads? I've still got that T-shirt, just so you know. It's framed. <laughs> it's framed. Yeah, I was looking at it the other day. Uh, the other day, 24th of April at 4.26. <laughs> Park. So you left it late then? <laughs> yeah. That was about 100 odd games in, wasn't it? I think it was a while, yeah, wasn't it? It was a good while. Seems to recall, I think we'd get to it anyway, but there's a lot of people that were that, that, uh, very proud of the fact they were there for it. It was a bit of a, an iconic thing. Um, we talked about it earlier, Sam. Um, you grew up in Devon, um, yeah. Exeter, and uh, so you said you're a Liverpool fan, but before you joined Barnet, I wondered if you had any uh, knowledge of the club or awareness of the club or, or any you know, relationship or, or anything like that. No, not really. The, the only thing that I knew before I came was that Alan Mullery was the gaffer and I remember him from the goals of like 100 top goals that used to get in a VHF and it used to be Mullery and he's Molly one. So that's the only thing I knew about sort of them and, and, and Barnet. But no, listen, like, as you said, I grew up down in Exeter. Um, I played through the school system there. Two older brothers, my mum, dad weren't about. Um, pretty much quite of a cool, cool sort of life in some respects. Or when I look back on it, you know, it was a lot of time on my own, a lot of time with my older brothers. My mum was working and doing all stuff like that and around. So you did what every kid did, right? We, we had a group of us. We used to meet at school. We'd play. We'd meet after school. We'd play. Um, and during that time, I played for me schools and a few uh, Sunday clubs, Sunday teams. And I got looked at by Southampton at about 10 years old. My scout, Rod Ruddock. What a legend, absolute legend, plucked me out of nowhere. And I used to go up school holidays. Um, every school holiday, we'd go to army camps, either Tidworth or Bovington or something like that. Uh, Bonington, sorry, Bovington, that's a drink. Bonington, <laughs> it is Bonington, I think. Yeah, it is. Um, anyway, we used to go there for school holidays. All of us from all over the regions, the lads, we'd all sleep in a dormitory. They'd get us up marching and all those sort of things. But we'd all battle it out as the kids from all around. and. They'd windle that pot down from 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. You'd sign your schoolboy forms, right? That's what you was gearing up through. That's your first milestone. And then after that, your YTS at 16. And then you're pro at 18. That's how it used to be. Boom, boom, boom. 
So yeah, well, I was at Southampton for 10 years, then all of a sudden Barnett came in for me. Mike Taylor was going the other way as a goalkeeper. Always, um, he was there, obviously, he was going the other way. And I think there was an opportunity that they needed a fullback. And, and at the time they threw my name in there as, as, I like to think part of the deal, but probably not part of the deal. They're just trying to move me on. You know? Nah, they didn't, you know, so, but, and, and the story goes really, I've been raffling a little bit, but the, the, the thing was, and this is what I sort of say, when I was 23, I played like 130 games in the first team, like in men's football. And the lads that I was with in the youth team, probably out of 10, 11 of them, they hadn't even broken into the first team yet. Maybe one or two of them was on the bench. So, God, when I look back on it, I was gutted because I was leaving the Premier League, Southampton, being there 10 years. But wow, what an education. And to be fair, the atmosphere up, up Underhill and the fans there all helped us all. It was a massive, massive part of that. Massive part of that. Just wanted to ask about that kind of that education at Southampton and kind of how involved you were. As you say, you were, in, you were coming through a Premier League team at the birth of the Premier League through the sort of mid-90s. Um, you know, did you train with the first team at all? Did you get any time with Matt Letizier? Obviously, they had that kind of Premier League icon in him there. What was it like coming through at, su at such a, at the time, established Premier League club? It, that, that was what was so great about it. I think at the time, 22 of maybe the 26 first team squad had come through the system. Um, the standards the, the, were set in place, but there was a real family atmosphere. You sort of knew... If you was in a YTS, you had to earn yourself to get to the reserves. Once you got to the reserves, maybe you had an opportunity of breaking into the first team. There was that sort of group. And then you had a group of young lads who would be in the first team. But it was all, it was all seamless. You didn't really know. You just went out and trained as hard as you could every single day because that was expected. And then sort of everything took care of itself. And the older pros in that had a massive hand in it. It was quality, you know. It, it, it was great. They would keep you in place. You'd have to knock on the changing room with a pot of tea and they'd keep you standing there for ages. And then you'd walk in and then they'd shout at you for walking in. <laughs> or, you know what I mean? All of that. But that was what was so great about it. There was, it was the first team. That's where you wanted to get to and it was the pinnacle. But um, no, as for Matt Letiz, he was an absolute legend. As all the lads were, Franny Benali, Ken Moncal, Jim McJulton, Dave Besson, Bruce, you can name them all, all great characters. All I remember, like, I just remember being in YTS and hearing the first team change room and it just be roaring with laughter every single morning, like, whenever they were together. And that, that was what was so cool about it all. But yeah, I, 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 cleaned, my, I cleaned Matt Letiz's boots in my second year. So it was a winner because he wore quasars, right? And he had inner soles. And those inner soles wore the boots up quite quick. So if you like to, you could sometimes get them signed and you get like 150 quid, maybe 200 for the lads. <laughs> but when you're YTS yes, on 26 quid for every two weeks, you're selling them out. You know what I mean? It's just a little little thing. that Those sort of things are always there, you know what I mean? Christmas bonuses, you know, if you go out, you know, that if you bump into one of the first teamers, they'd always look after you. They'd always make sure you was right. They'd always make sure you get home. And if you was over the edge, you'd know about it on a Monday in the changing room because they'd call you in, you know? But that's what was so great about it. Look how many quality people they just gone on from strength to strength to strength of, you know, maybe arguably up until sort of they had a little spell maybe two, three years ago. But up until then, they've just been producing and that's what's, that's what's so beautiful about this game for me, the ability to be able to develop inside it, you know. It's funny you talk about the 90s. It's sort of, for all of us, it was the time that we grew up watching football. And, uh, you know, the stories about youth team players cleaning the boots and making the tea and all the first teams sort of taking the mick out of them and all the rest of it. It sounds, sounds quite familiar from what you're talking about. 
but then you've obviously joined Barnet, uh, and at the age of 19, you're making your first team debut in the same game as another friend of the podcast, Lee Harrison. Yeah. And from that point onwards, uh, you know, you're a first team regular. You, you, you're making appearances all the way through the rest of that season. Uh, how was that transition for you from making the tee to making your first team debut in, in competitive men's football at that age? That's a brilliant question. And I used to sit next to Harry. I remember sitting next to Harry in my first seasons and be like, Harry, like, do you get nervous before games? I said, because I get trying to think that I wasn't, but I used to have all these feelings that I was obviously just in the first team doing it. And um, it was, it, it was, um, it, you talk about that era, like those 90s to 2000s, that's when it came out the old school for me, then into regeneration, into di- dynamic stretching, into living right. I see that sort of all that generation and I could see why sort of players dropped off as it, as it got going, you know, because it was a tough transition. Um, honestly, it was fight or flight. I think, you know, the preparation that I had beforehand at Southampton had set me up for those situations to be in the first team. You dreamed of it. But to be honest with you, if I look back at, if I look back at one of my moments there, just before I got released that season, I'd just been moved into the first team. Graham Sooners came in. They moved me back to right centre-back stroke wing-back because I sort of had some lungs. Um, and I remember playing. I played all the pre-seasons. You talked about training with the first team and moving in with them. Like, all of a sudden, you're training. I was absolutely shit in my pants. <laughs> absolutely. You don't know how you get through it, but the adrenaline gets you through it and you just got to believe in your kind of ability and don't make any mistakes and don't injure anyone, like, special because that's the worst thing you could sort of do. <laughs> um, but I remember playing Wickham away and it was probably two games before the season um, uh, and didn't play very well. They played a five. Farrell played. Remember you Andy? I think it was Andy Farrell. Wickham, the winger, Farrell. Went to Peterborough as well, I think. It was it Andy Farrell? No, the one who done yeah. it in the Browns. Yeah. 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 Andy Farrell, I can't remember. I feel, yeah, yeah lad, him in his heyday, but decent. He tore, me, he, he tore me apart, really, because I didn't really know what was going. So when I look back on that, there's no support around that. You know what I mean? All of a sudden, you think you're there, and then all of a sudden, three, four months later, you moved on to Barnet. So it's mad how I look back at that time and think, maybe is it hinged on that one game? Not, not. it wasn't, you know what I mean? But that, there wasn't that explanation back there, you know what I mean? So I think that was a big difference. And then playing in the first team, you had to be a man. That, that's all I can say. You had to be a man. You had to grow up fast. You well, you talk, you talk about nerves uh, before big games, and obviously we had half decent go in the cup in the league cup uh fairly early on we had the the, the triumph over norwich and then obviously that middlesbrough game where yeah. I, think, I, mean, I don't know what it was like for you but certainly as fans when you see people like paul merson come down and i think emerson might have played that day as well yeah, Mikhail, yeah. i think i think, I think he, he sort of threw himself down if i remember rightly for a for a penalty but yeah for us obviously very exciting um but yeah for you how was that it's like yeah it's that it's it's you just want to. You just want to play well. You just want to give yourself a good accountable, and you want to play well, and you want to work your socks off because it's a test against some of the best. And you go to those, you know, with all due respect, when you're at Barnet and you're going up the hill on a Saturday afternoon, you're there to work your socks off, build a relationship with the fans, and hopefully try and move on and be successful. It's the type of club where it was at at the time, you know. Um, so you just yeah, you just want to you just want to you just want to represent yourself well because you know that there's going to be not only everybody watching it but also the lads on the way home. If you get sort of if you get 
if you get ripped a new one, then you're knowing about that on the way home, you know, and that comes back to that culture again. I think that's probably changed a bit now where it'd be a lot more detail and analysis and look. And I think my personality, I would suit much more now. I was a pleaser. I wanted to be patting on the back. That's why I had a great, uh, great response with the fans because I felt like the fans at Barnet really liked me and, they, and, and I got on with them and that's when the relationship was there because that was me as a player. I was a pleaser. So, um, yeah, so, so for me, it was, it was a great report. Yeah, and obviously we were saying that first, so your first full season, we had that great start in the League Cup against those big sides, and it was ultimately a successful season as well. Talk about making that transition to playing men's football, proper football, if you like. Um, who were kind of your, your guys in the squad? Who, who were the players you clicked with kind of off the field or in training where you kind of built those relationships to fit into the team so well? No, I, I think... We had a great squad. I was there for my first, the first year I was there, but then obviously Bully had it for a little bit and he left. And then just when Stilly come in, for me, as structured and as mad as it was with Stilly, Stilly, my, like, my, my best relationship probably in my entire football career was with Curry, was with Rubes. And I still, even now, I still speak to him daily um, and everything. Great lad. Paul Wilson, when I first went there, was a really good lad. Limboy Primus was a really good lad there. Lee Hodges was great banter, but great, good lad. They were all good lads there, and they'd all played at a really good level. It was all like Tottenham, Arsenal, Chelsea, uh, Charlton, Millwall. These were like good lads that were equally as hungry, but... No, no, it was just it was just a good feel around the place. Everybody sort of put their heads down and worked, you know, and then... So we had that group there. Sean Devine, I used to travel in with Lumps. He was a good lad. He took me under his wing a little bit. Um, and then Harry was a good, great lad. I was with Harry there for the, the entire time. And then that's when, obviously, Ken Charlery and Duels and all of that, Lynn. But we speak about it often now. That, 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 we had that group there for a couple of years. We... I can't believe we didn't get up. I can't believe we, we didn't do something. You know what I mean? You think we had two playoff semi-finals in the, in the auto glass, which could have got us to Wembley. And then we had the two playoffs. Peterborough could have got to, we had like four chances to get to Wembley. We didn't get there once. We're still, and we're still waiting. Barnet obviously hasn't been to Wembley since, since the seventies. So we're all, we're all still waiting for that. I mean, on the, um, on the topic of Wembley, that, that first season, 97, 98, as you, you know, alluded to a lot of the players in the squad, John Still's first season, we finished in a playoff spot, and there was obviously the heartbreak against Colchester with the penalty call and everything else. Yeah. As you, you know, obviously it was ultimately a disappointment, but I'm sure from your perspective as a young player, a memorable season. What were the kind of standout moments of that campaign, even if it didn't end how he wanted it to? I think that was a season that I might have played. I nearly played, and maybe didn't miss a game. I think that might be in the first, my first full season. I might, I'm very hope... close, very close to being ever present that year. I've got, yeah. got you down as 49 games that year. Yeah, 49. And I think so. Yeah, that was the first real time for me of, of playing that, that stretch of season and getting a little bit comfortable. The penny sort of dropped halfway through that season that, you know, I, I fit in, I'm right here. So I, I think that was big. Colchester was obviously the big one, but like you said, because we were so close in, in that year. And I think that. It, with all due respect to Stilly, and I love him to bits, but I think we were a team that you could work out quite easily how we were going to play whilst he was going to be at the club. And I think when he first came in and he got us all working, we had a good chance then. Um, and and I think, yeah, I think, you know, that 
that Colchester game with a penalty and that was a killer. 49 games that season. The, the only, the only 40, yeah, 48, 49. So then the only players that played more were Hall, Heald, Howarth and Harrison. Yeah. So you were pretty well established. So it was Hall, Heald, Harrison. Howarth. So that's a back four right there, wasn't it? Because he, he'll play centre-back, him and Harrison, two centre-backs, wasn't it? Yeah. And then Harley played out left-back. Was Harley left-back then? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so you look at that. That's not very often you can do that now, can you, in modern day? And slightly away from the football, in, in that season, we started to be sponsored by Loaded, which got us a little bit of attention uh, in, in certain circles. Um as a 20, 21-year-old uh, young lad. Uh, was there anything there that's, um, that's worth telling? Is there any stories that are, uh, <laughs> are worth telling that are in line with the uh, PG sense of the podcast? Do you know what? I, I, I thought I'd have quite a few stories to tell you about. Uh, Dow Curry actually sent me some pictures of how we looked back then and the cheek <laughs> of how we used to think that we looked back. <laughs> like I had a skinhead in a three-quarter length leather uh, suit jacket and he had blonde hair and then another time I had stringy white blonde dyed hair and it was like sprayed <laughs> to my head in a cropped vest top I look back <laughs> on that now and think oh my god now to cut long stuff we didn't we had a couple of folk we were all hoping all the lads obviously you know what I mean it was reloaded came in with that magazine it was the first of its kind and we thought oh we'll get some parties but we didn't get anything we had we got to, we got invited to one loaded Christmas party that we all went to after a playoff game in the evening as part of our Christmas do. And we got there, and I think the party knew we were coming and left because there was <laughs> nobody in the building. So whether it was a hoax or not, but nah, nothing too, nothing crazy there at all. Just about bad dress sense. Yeah, I yeah, I saw a photo on Twitter of a horse turning up at the ground for the for the squad photo. It was uh, in our team photo. We just sent that the other day to Ruby because we think it looks like horse because his team. So we sent <laughs> we sent him the picture. Sam didn't know he made front row. <laughs> yeah, the nineties the nineties were uh, were a time in our lives that we can all look back on and think it could have been better. Maybe the mid two thousands for myself as well. Oh, we football. had some great times at Barnet. Stilly was big with that. Oh, he loved that. Stilly was big with that. That's why we, we, we were as successful as we were. We were obviously limited in a lot of areas, but Stilly always promoted team bonding, getting together, going out at the right times. Obviously, he worked us every day in training to our maximum. I'd never been so fit, but I'd never been out and had as much of a laugh as I had either. Yeah, so obviously going back from the football, from the loaded to actually to, to the season where they had the horse down for the team photo, 98-99 was a bit of a kind of anomaly. And we were saying we had a really good squad for a good three or four seasons. But that year in the league, we didn't really do much. There were sort of two standout games I wanted to talk about. Uh, first on a positive note was we beat Wolves in the League Cup. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you have any memories of that one. I remember it. Didn't, um, what was the year that, that we played? Because I remember we played with Keane and Ball up top and Keane yeah. got hat-trick in about three minutes. Yeah, yeah. We beat them at home it was in, when it was two legs. So we beat yeah. them 2-1 at 100 and lost 5-0 up there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what a performance by Keane and Ball. No, it was Ball. Ball got hat-trick and got clapped off after about 60 minutes and then Keane <laughs> came on and done an overhead or a chip or something, if I remember rightly. Brilliant though, isn't it? Hey, playing with, being able to grace it with some of those lads and being on the field, you forget about what good players they were all up top for Wolves. Absolute legend. And you get to grace the fields. I've got to grace the field with 
Ray Wilkins at Leighton Orient, you know what I mean? So there's some Mick Arthur when he was at old, horrible, you know, all those legends that you hear about, um, you get to sort of, when you look back on it, you played against them all. I remember playing in a youth, I remember playing a youth team game against Wimbledon and Mick Arthur was up top and I was playing there at right back and he kept just putting his finger and sort of pointing over to my head and he was just going, stick it on his fucking head. <laughs> I was like, oh, I was like 18 years old crying. So Franny Benali at the time, like, hey, stop, sw- switch over. Like, you come inside one and I'll compete for that. Like, you know what I mean? You go back to those days, good times, but yeah, good players too. Yeah, well, and another, another sort of player who went on to do well against us, linking it to that in another game in that season. So Matthew Everington played against us for Peterborough in a, uh, a notable game, shall we say, which has yeah. been brought up on here a few times before, but I sort of, it's interesting to get everyone's individual memory of what a farce that game turned into. You know, it made sort of national news to lose 9-1 at home. I mean, what was that day like to be a part of? I was in the stand. So I can, I can take credit for watching in the stand. That's my get out for it. So I was never <laughs> quite involved in it. But no, I watched it. And I think we, we were sat up there. There's a few of us sat up there. I was injured, if I remember rightly. Um, and... I remember after two or three goals here, we were looking at the stand, we were going, oh my goodness, what is happening here? This, this could be five. Then it got to five and we were like, this ain't stopping. This ain't stopping. This is going to be sevens. And then when it got to nine, I'm never, never like going back in change rooms after that, never been involved, never been involved. Nobody knew what to do. We'd just been hit for, for absolute nine. It was a shell shot. Um, it's just one of those games, isn't it? It's never happened since. Yeah. I think, I mean, and even though it was ended up being not the, the best season, it was obviously sandwiched, I guess, in between two pretty good years. Um, there were still a lot of good players at the, at the club at the time. And I think everyone we've spoken to still says that it was a really good team spirit. Maybe, maybe the, the performances were a bit flatter than the year before, but actually still a good team spirit. Were there, were there players there that um, you were surprised weren't going on to play at a higher level at that time? Because I, I seem to remember there being some, you know, some real good, like Darren Curry's one, of course, that, that did, but... Were there, were there real standout players for you in that side? Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's, it's a great question, that. And I think that if you, if you look at that group of players, I think why we probably went flat in between was because we had never been, I don't think any of us had trained at a level, at a discipline of how a system needed to be played. You know, throwing the ball a certain way, where it was in the area of the field, and then the relentless training that Stilly would put us through, which was... Not complaining, it's, it's how it was back then. I'd never played as well as I played and been as fit as I, we played, but I think we all went as long as we could and that second season was a bit of a flat one for us. But if I remember rightly in that second season, you, and you'll have to go over a few, but did Marlon King break into the group then? He came yeah, into it, yeah, so he came in and listen, I, you know, Marlon to me was a bit of an enigma in some respects. I thought he had, he, I got on with him um, uh, I thought he was a goal scorer. I thought he was, you know, absolutely lethal in what he did, and he had an edge about him that I'd never seen in a young lad before. And he played at the level that he played for. You know what I mean? So um, he broke through. I thought this. I thought Rob Sawyer's might have had a chance at left back because he had a couple of seasons where he was bombing and getting forward, and he was a young lad that just come down. I think did he come from Birmingham or he dropped out of Birmingham, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. I thought my, my best mate and, and the best man at my first wedding, uh, Warren Goodine, was. Of, you know, I was obviously there when he'd done his leg, which was 
oh, and, and after it and, and how he had to get through all of that. But he would have gone on. Um, uh, I look at him. And then, you know, you look at Fraser Toms, people like that, they had glimpses of magic. Surly, another one that was calm and composed on the ball, done well. Duels, obviously a bit of a breaker-upper, um, uh, but also a great passer and gets around the field and was, was that injured at times, wasn't he, you know? Um, but it's surprising, you know, that there wasn't any real big, big movements. Just Marlon, I think, in the time. Limboy went down to Portugal. Yeah. Quite rightly so. He was the best in the league at the time for me, or was up there. He still had his to learn his trade, but you could see his his capabilities. So that second playoff season, we're talking about ninety nine two thousand now. Uh, you know, obviously at the business end of the table, um, you know we're in the right place again after the disappointment or sort of like a mediocre season previously. Um, for yourself personally, supporters are getting very excited about the fact that. After 151 appearances, which I've just looked up in the stats now, you finally got your first senior goal away to Hull. And as we spoke about earlier on, the T-shirts have been printed. I think the, I think the quote is, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, I was there when Sammy scored. And it's got That's the, the one. That's the one. What was, what's, what's that like for you to get a, a, a tribute like that on a, on a, on a T-shirt? I think it. I think it just. Uh, I think it stipulated the relationship. Really, I think that they knew that I grafted and I grafted and I grafted, and um, it, it was never for the want of scoring. Um, and then I think it probably turned into a bit of a sort of a joke and a bit of a long-running joke. And then obviously to get it up there at Boothry Park and for it to be done like that and get a T-shirt. Like I said, I got the whole team to sign it and I had it framed you know, at the time. So now when I look back on it, like I said, it's hanging in my little boy's bedroom at the minute. It's the only one. I, I kept every one of my shirts for all the teams I played for. Each season, I'd go home and away and kept, get them all framed. And that's the only one that I have out, funnily enough. Um, and it's just a great it's just a great picture. It's the loaded, it's the gold, it's the old Fred boots, decent strike, good little technique, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> buzzing. No, it was great. It was great. I should have scored more, but I did like to... For me, I like to whip the ball. I like to cross it. I was going to say, because obviously you, you got forward a lot. You didn't score many goals, but you got forward a lot. And I was going to ask, you mentioned about him earlier, Robbie Sawyer was on the left, you were on the right. Yeah. Depending on how we set up. So if we were playing defensively or four across the back, there wasn't so much pushing up. But if we played three centre-backs, you were very much used as, as wing-backs. Wing back. You know, you look at the way Liverpool play now, I think we were 20 years ahead of them at Barnet at the turn yeah. of the centre. With you and Sawyer's kind of bombing forward like that. And I remember as a fan watching at the time, it looked like you kind of, was it so obviously it was worked on in training, but did you two have that kind of relationship of knowing who's going at what time? Do you feel like it's, it's an odd thing to have a partnership across two sides of the pitch, but I feel like it was quite clear to see from the stands anyway. No, you're, you're exactly right. I think when I look back on it, maybe in those early parts, and you know, maybe what one thing I think probably might have hindered me, maybe back in the, in the day of trying to get a move, or I, you know. Dare I say it, was I good enough? Who knows? I never got back to sort of playing in the Premier League. Um, but I think I did used to leave gaps behind me because I used to love to get forward. And then for Ro Robbie, Robbie was different because he kind of had the whole left-hand side to sort of work with, where I, I had Darren on my side. So Darren fitted perfectly for me because Darren would just slide inside and he would want to come and play in that gap between obviously the midfield and the centre-backs and 
he would drift in and I could just punch in the ball and get on my bike and I knew that it would be dropped over my shoulder or it would be put in a space for me to be able to deliver it. Um, and then I'd have to overlap him back to defend because he still stayed up top, you know what I mean? That was Rubes to a T. But uh, no, and we used to train that all the time in training. Me and Rubes used to spend so much time working on a ball pinged out to us combination on a one-two, bang, bang, and then I cross the ball, and then he crosses the ball. We used to work at that up at Firstfield on the on the Astro at the training centre at Firstfield. It was zipped out ball on the old Astro, one of those. So it'd come at pace, you'd have to kill it and then whip it in there. So we learned on that, um, and it was great. And then, yeah, Robbie, Robbie was on the other side. He, he was always trying to deliver balls. He was always trying to get better, Robbie, you know what I mean? We've, 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 we've sort of mused on it before. Do you know what happened to Robbie Sawyers? And that's a weird question, but he, he left Barnet, played for Hereford briefly, and then like, there's no trace. <laughs> I have no idea. I would love to know. I have no idea. No idea where he is. Well, I have to hunt him down. If anybody knows, anyone listening knows where Robbie Sawyers <laughs> is, please let us know. Yeah, uh, I know all about, I know all about that. Sawyers. <laughs> I know all about that first build Astro as well, that horrible sandy texture, oh, wasn't it? I, I, grew up in Potters, I grew up in Potters Bar, I used to go down there all the time, and used to come up with sand burns all up your arm and legs all uh, the time, it was horrible. Greg Hill would be in shorts, sliding, guaranteed, <laughs> every day of the week, even on the hottest, sandiest day, he's oh. sliding, standard. No good, no good. We, we sort of talk about that, that whole goal and the reaction from the supporters printing a T-shirt for you. Uh, a club like Barnet, how important is it for a player to to have that reaction, that interaction, and you know that relationship with supporters that that clearly you did because you were held in such high regard? Oh, it was massive. It was massive. If you look, if I look over my career, the clubs that I did well at was the clubs that I had a great relationship with the supporters in, and I know that's easy to say. Some people didn't care. Some people did not care. Did not give a crap whether. They were getting booed by their team. They would come up, they'd do their job. They would put a, put, put a good performance in and they would go home and not care. But I wasn't like that. I, I was one of those lads that, I told you, I, I liked an arm around my shoulder. I liked to cuddle. I liked, I liked to be told that I'd done well in a game. I'd like, you know, I liked to pat on the bat. It's what, it's what I, you know, it's how I was as a player. So to have that relationship with supporters, and I had my first son there, Callum, obviously. So I used to push a pram through there at 21 years old, down the, down past the, the the dugouts, and then into the players' bar, and then out or back into the car park where the school was. I think I'd be pushing my, I'd be you know, I push my boy along there in the pram, and the supporters being able to go through that bar and always get a pat on the back, and always be like unlucky, and always be like you worked hard was massive for me, massive. Massive. Yeah, it's, always always unlucky. Yeah, it says a bit about how much fun it tends to win. <laughs> always, uh, we had some belting games there at the time, though, didn't we? You know what I mean? The Tuesday night at Underhill, when it, there was a bit of zip on the pitch under lights, and we were banging that ball around. It was it was quality. It's quality. Every guest we've had has said Tuesday night under the lights. Something about under. Hundred percent at Barnet when we had a bit of a full house. You know, two, three and a half thousand people there when it was getting going. It's quality. I loved it. Yeah, and it's like a big thing for all of us. Uh, to be fair, that second playoff season, you'd have to say, was a was a good season, even though in, in a weird sort of way, it promised a bit more at the beginning of the season than it ended up delivering. I think we, we, would, we, would, we started so well and were so strong and obviously hobbled into the playoffs, which sort of became our, our thing, really. Uh, and, then, and then it didn't really take off from there. Do you, do you think we were good enough to go? Should, should we have done more that year? Should we have gone up? 
I think we should have gone up. I think we probably would have struggled if the way we go up. We was we, we had a style of play, right? But I think when when Stilly first came in, we definitely had a style of play. But when we left that style of play, I believe even with Stilly, it, it adjusted quite a lot with the freedom of like obviously we played a little lopsided like we spoke about because Darren would always play tucked in, so we'd push somebody out on the left hand side, or if he went on the other side, that would create space for me to bomb. So. You, you know, when you look at it like that, it was um, it, it, it was decent. You know what I mean? It was decent. Um, I just lost. For, sorry, lads, I forgot what we were. Yes. That line we were going down. That's all right. No, that's all right. Just uh, saying, should should we have got more out? Yeah, that beg your pardon. No, should I think we should? I think we should have. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. I think a few of the others we've spoken to have said that one of the difficulties under under John Steele, and I don't think it's a criticism of him directly, but it, it's two things. One is that. Um, by the second half of the season, everyone's played you once and they kind of figured out what they can expect. And the other thing is that because of the intensity of the training, you get past that busy Christmas spell and everyone's just a little bit flat and a little bit tired. Um, and, it, and maybe you've been pushed a little bit too, too hard. Does that, does that resonate with you as well? Do you, do you recognise that as a... Yeah, yeah. I, I think the, the best way to put it is we didn't have a plan B. Yeah. So if plan B didn't work, if plan, if plan A weren't working, we're just going to carry on hammering plan A. And that's sort of what we had. Um, I, I, I agree. I agree and I don't agree because I think you look at the, the, the makeup of what we had physically in that team with the young lads and the old lads. We were capable of doing 60 games, bang at it hard. There was no question about that. We were all hungry. We were all trying to prove we were all trying to make a name for ourselves we were all trying to make a name for the group you know we had a real togetherness so I don't think maybe that fatigue we didn't necessarily have a lot of muscle injuries I never think we did we just had a flat pot well like you said well, I don't think we kind of had a plan B which we might have needed yeah. at times and it obviously got to that playoff and and uh yeah what wasn't wasn't as good as the one a couple of years before I guess I think it was you know we, we lost in the first game and then had that real, uh, real terrible one away. Um, I don't know how much you remember about that, and is it a bit of a blur back now? Back, back think about it back now. No, I remember um, the lad at Peterborough he scored that trick, didn't he? Yeah, Farrell. That, Farrell, that's, Farrell yeah, again. same lad, same lad. Yeah, yeah. he scored that trick. Um, I, I remember, I remember getting there. Uh, I remember being at Peterborough, and I just. I remember being in that changing room and I remember us all being up for it. And I don't, I didn't, I didn't walk on that field thinking like we were struggling. I just think they were up for it and the crowd got behind them big time. Um, and they came after us. They kept dropping the ball over the top of us and we were like pressed and pressed and pressed. And as I told you, we didn't really have a plan B. So, but what we did as we could bend and bow, but we'd never snap. And I think that at places like that, when it snapped, we knew that we weren't coming back into it unless we would get a goal, you know, unless there was an opportunity of a set piece or something like that because they just came at us so hard. It, it was done, wasn't it, in about 35 minutes. I think we were two or three down early, well, and it was just killed us. It was pretty quick. and I, I, no, I'm not an expert in, in Farrell's uh, career, but I can't imagine he had too many better games than, than that one. I remember um, we had uh, Bert Bossu in goal for, I think, his third one, and he was he's about eight foot six, um, and he got lobbed. Um, I remember him getting chipped, yeah, at eight foot. It's like, how does an eight foot keeper get chipped? And it was probably a four foot chip. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, but I, only joking. But I think what you got to remember, right, and I think this is a big part of it that sort of gives it a little bit of an insight in a good way, is it's never quite 
simple, you know, in those days at Barnet. We'd all be together, but, you know, most clubs would probably stay overnight, maybe, if they're in the semi-final of a playoff. Probably, regardless if it's just up the road, surely you could stay overnight and do this and that. So there's always little bits along the way that I, you asked us, could we have got promoted? Yeah, I think we could have if, if there was a bit more money in the budget to be able to do things a little bit more like other teams had. And that's what we was always fighting with at Barnet. It was never that we weren't good enough. It's just given, given a clean slate, the same as all the other clubs, if we had what all of they had, you know what I mean? Staying overnight, it's not travelling on the day. We used to get our dinners on the bus by Tony's dad. All these different things that you look back on and actually at the time nobody thinks makes a difference. But actually in a performance wheel now in the modern day is a massive difference, right? That's that small margins that probably would have got us promoted and maybe done us better in those big games. I felt we never prepared to the best of our ability that you could when we when we were in those situations, potentially. We did what we could, but there was always better ways of doing it. That's an interesting insight there. And obviously, yeah, so massive disappointment for players and supporters alike. Um, we've had a few of the members of that squad on in previous episodes, and we found out a little bit about, uh, obviously, there was disappointment at the end of the season, but the team bonding was still going strong because uh, there was a trip to Dublin, I believe. <laughs> um, now, we've heard Warren Goodheim was telling us about yourself and Darren Curry. And the three of you are only allowed one item each. So we've heard that <laughs> in the story. We've heard little drips and drabs of other, other things in there. I just wondered, Sam, if there's anything you can share as a podcast exclusive about this trip. Because it's becoming a bit of a thing. And there's a bit of knowledge, but we'd love to know a bit more. <laughs> it depends what sort of knowledge you lads have had. Like, you know what I mean? We can... We can... No, it, that's what... And if I could yeah. add one thing, we think we're probably going to get Greg Hild on. Uh, we certainly hope to get him on soon. So anything you can add uh, that we might want to ask him or anything like that, be uh, be welcome. Oh yeah, Groovy <laughs> was always good. Groovy was always like Groovy was our sort of bouncer. For me, wasn't <laughs> doubt. You know what I mean? Because me wasn't doubt. Yeah, we we had a night. We went to Dublin for four days, and we were like, right, we, we, you know, we did used to like a bit of a night out back then, and we used to sort of have some fun. We used to go obviously here on a Monday night, all those different things, and. One time we all had a lads do Eros Monday night, but we used to meet in the pub across from First Field and we'd meet there Monday after training and then go from there. Oh, that is a rough Tuesday. pub, that is. Yeah, <laughs> we'd go there. So, like, we, me, Dow, and uh, was we went in their fancy dress once. I think I was a fat pilot. He was a fat hippie. And Dow was, what was Dow? Dow was a, uh, no, it, like, fat biker or something like that. <laughs> we'd blow up suits, you know what I mean? And we'd go out like that. We used to just... Yeah, we had good times. We had good times. That, that in, in Ireland, it was just, I took, what did I take? I took two, I took my toothbrush, but I took my toothbrush, but I weren't allowed toothpaste because that was an extra <laughs> item. No, <laughs> so I took my toothbrush, on hindsight, I probably should have took toothpaste, but I took my toothbrush, but I ended up having no toothpaste. Now, obviously, only took air gel. So he had big white pits from deodorant and everything <laughs> like that. And I think was took chewing gum. That was his luxury item, his chewing gum, which he lost on the first night. So he was done <laughs> for the rest of the trip. But yeah, when we got picked up back in the hotel, uh, back in the airport, my mum picked me up, actually. She picked me up in the elevator. Dow's, uh, uh, God rest her soul, mum picked her, him up as well. Um, and uh, oh, we had these massive white pits. We've been on, we've been on it for days. Four days in the same clothes, no showers, no nothing. 
it was good. It was good. Well, that sounds like a, a good trip that was had by all. But um, if we get back to football, uh, <laughs> we'll go into the following season. Um, so we're wearing this awful peach kit, but the results on the pitch are, are, are pretty good. We're, we're, in, we're in good shape and we beat Blackpool 7-0. Uh, and then somewhere in the, in the winter, suddenly we have a change of management. And like Ian says... We've spoken to a few of the boys from that season about that. Uh, I just wanted, wondered if, um, you know, you've got a view on sort of Tony Cotty and what that was like from there, because clearly things took a, a turn on the pitch from that point onwards. You know, was there anything from your perspective that, that, that made that, you know, that made that happen or was there something that didn't work or, or what was it? Yeah, to, to, Tony Cotty, my relationship with Tony Cotty was, was sound. Um, it didn't affect me, him too much, me coming in. We, we all thought that he, we knew he was coming in as sort of player manager, but um, the thought process we all hoped was he was going to come in and bang the goals in. And that's what he did, wasn't it? Up until sort of Christmas, we were flying and he was banging in, he was banging in the goals. Um, and he's the first sort of massive high profile, obviously, player that we had. So it was quality. We all... Um, you know what I mean? He, he trained, he was the first really trained when he needed to train and when he wanted to train, which isn't a bad thing because of where he was at in his career. But we didn't have that type of mentality at the club. We were all like, just train. You know, that's what was installed in us. So that was a bit of a change and a learning curve for us, which is great. It, it, you're all right when you're banging in goals and you're not training, that's sound. But if you're not training and you're not banging in goals and then the team starts losing, then that always becomes a difficult scenario. And I think that was something that I reckon if he had his time again as a manager, he'd probably want to navigate through from, from a balance of being part of the team. And to be honest with you, I think, you know, my understanding of it was at Christmas, he, he, went, he wanted to take sort of over in charge of the team and become a bit more off the field in the management uh, department. And I think what we had at Barnet, as you know, is we had a system. We had a manager of a system and we had players that all plugged into that system. And we had round pegs in round holes doing round things. Um, and that's why it all sort of worked. And I think at times, whether it was right or wrong, maybe how Tony wanted to play, we just didn't have the personnel and the understanding of it. And... We did it, we changed it a little bit right in the middle of the season. And then with results going wrong, then it's a recipe for disaster, right? You've only got two, three games. And then all of a sudden you're starting to doubt things. And I think that's sort of really what happened. Still, he took a back seat because I think he had to, because that was the role of, from my understanding, that was the sort of, that was the way that, that, that uh, Tony was going to come in to be sort of head coach as well as manager in the future. And I think, you, you know, that sort of happened. And we just didn't adapt to it. Yeah, I, think I, got, my, I got my I got my timing slightly wrong there. His first game actually was that Blackpool game. Yeah, he got. And three when he, he first comes in as player manager, Darren Curry scores a hat trick. Tony Cotty scores, and we beat Blackpool seven nil. You're looking at that and thinking, well, the world's a oyster. And clearly, yeah. from there, it's 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 become quite difficult. But uh, like you say, it's uh, things were things were going downhill quite quickly. I think I think it's I think probably if if things aren't smooth off the field, then I think there's always a difficulty that that's that always seeps onto the field, and I think that's basically how it was. It's difficult for me. I'd just come off the back of a season, I'd, so I've been at the club 
three years. I'd had two playoff seasons out of three. So my contract was up for renewal. So I was wanting a new contract. I was being told that I was getting one. Then obviously when Tony came in, that then was on hold and that possibly wasn't going to be happening. So I think there was quite a few of us in that position as well who would work really well to earn, earn where we were at. And then that, that wasn't potentially an option anymore. So, that, you know, there was a lot going on, on and off the field that I think they had to deal with. I think if you take it from that, you've got that 7-0 Blackpool game when he turns up. Um, a very different situation when we played Blackpool again, which was the penultimate game of the season. And um, remember that one quite, quite clearly, actually. We, won, we went 1-0 up uh, and it yeah. looked like we might have done enough to get ourselves out of that, that pickle. Obviously, it, it wasn't to be. And I think, Ian, you'll talk a little bit about Torquay in a minute. But one of the things we heard as well was that I think it was the day after Blackpool was the PFA Awards. And I think we heard that some players enjoyed it and some players really enjoyed it. Um, do, you, do, you, do you remember that? And that kind of like, I suppose, that day and then that build-up uh, of, of, of the week that followed? I don't really remember it, to be honest with you. Um, I just remember going to games, because you mentioned Blackpool. It was at the old Bullfree Road when it was packed. Did Taylor score a header? I can't remember. I know that we were... We were hanging in and hanging in, and then they nicked one, and the whole place erupted. Wayne Perster. That's what, sorry? They, they were going for the playoffs, so they were. Yeah, they were. I think Wayne yeah. Perster got our goal. He got, I think he got the first and the second, actually, Perster. He scored early. Yeah. And then I think they got three, and then we got a late goal, so it was sort of, sort of done by then. Yeah. I, me I remember those games. I don't really remember the PFA thing between it, to be honest with you. I'd say if I did. And then I remember the talkie game. I didn't, it's only now you reminded me of the Blackpool beforehand. I didn't know what the run-up was. I knew we were on a slide and we hadn't won for 20-something games. I just, you know what I mean? We were just, it was, you're in it every day. You're just trying to get out of it. But there was a dark place around the building. There was a dark feel around the building. I do remember that. Um, I did what, uh, you know, we did what we knew what to do and that was get our head downs and work as hard as we could. But I think ultimately we probably weren't good enough and we knew that we were sliding. Nobody wanted to go down. Everybody was obviously, you know, I remember Greg Hill coming in, had pictures of his of his newborn baby that he that he pinned against the, the, the pegs. I remember Dooley doing that. I remember a lot of people understanding where we were at with that. Um, but I think, I think when you're in that rhythm and things were just moment a goal went in, in that run, we would just, just fell apart. Yeah, there, was, there was quite a big turnover of the squad through the course of that season as well. You know, you've talked about, and, and we've had others as well, say the unity, and you said John Steele was very much about the team bonding and you had a good group of lads who got on. Um, you know, did you find that the dressing room was a little bit split, that you may have been all, even if you're all working hard, you're not necessarily all put in exactly the same direction perhaps, and, and maybe there's, different agendas going on or was that not obvious to you it was just going wrong for whatever reason no I, f I think that's a big part you know and I've been fortunate to be since I've been back with Dow being around the club and being back around it again at the Hive and everything like that and I think that's a big part of kind of the makeup with Barnet is that it has to be smooth and it has to be together in the changing rooms because you kind of deal with a lot of adversity as a group and as a team football and outside of football that you have to sort of work through as a unit um so if you're not together then it's going to rip you apart because there's other things that kind of happen within things that have already sort of 
knock the stuffing out of you and then you come in and then the lads aren't together and then it's tough and that's kind of where how it was for that last season you know I think the tech I think I think that's fair to say that the changing room was split you know um I think that you know people liked it how it was because they were playing some people didn't like it because they were suddenly out of it you know it was all of that but it's different when when the difference between playing is appearance money and bonus which ultimately makes you meet your mortgage and your car payment and everything else or your missus who's maybe just having a baby you need that's part of your wage and I think that's in in I remember that being quite stressful in those years in those early years as dealing with people and money and playing and playing through it because they needed their appearance and their appearance mean that they'd get money and and I remember that yeah, well, and say amongst you know all this this chaotic build up and everything, we got to that final day of the season against Torquay. Obviously, it was proved to be your final game for Barnet. Um, I had the program out from it the other day. So you're on the front cover. I think I've actually got your autograph on the front of it somewhere from nice. years ago. Uh, I haven't got it to hand right now, but um, yeah, you know we, we've spoken about that day at length on quite a few of these with different people. It is for the wrong reasons one of the most significant days in the club's history you know we had all the media down there Chris Kamara's behind the goal on a bit of scaffolding it's kind of the most talked about game in the country because it was like a playoff for yeah relegation out of the league at a time there's only one place and it was you really felt that drop I mean what what do you remember of the day what you know obviously it's not a good day but is there anything that sort of stands out and what what are your memories of yeah no uh, I, I was routine so for me the routine to the game I tried to keep it we heard that there might be 4,000, there might be 5,000. Then when we were warming up, we were told there's another 3,000 outside that can't get in. So we all knew where we were at. We knew how positive it was. Uh, or Sorry, not how positive. We knew, we, we knew that the pressure was on. We knew that we were in the game of all games. And, you know, I think they're the games that you, even though you don't want to play and you wanted to be picked for that game because you knew how big it would be and the opportunity that you had. I remember it being really windy and I remember us play, being uphill to start with. Did they flip us or did we go downhill first up and uphill second half? I remember them flipping us, I think. They were downhill first half. The goals are down there, fans down the yeah, south. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I remember that. I remember that day. I remember it being a windy, dry day. And I remember the f walking on the field and for me, it was like, is this a stud or is this a mould? I'm going to have to wear a stud because if I slip, I can't slip in this game. But I know that it's not the right surface for a stud. And those are the sort of things that I remember going about it. Then I remember the streaker coming on and Hildy just volleying him. But we were so in the zone and we were struggling at the time. I didn't, it was only afterwards that I really remembered that. Uh, I think Rubes missed a penalty, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. And what, what was the score at that? Was that to pass we, one we up? Were, we were two 0 down, and on the counter attack, they went three 0 up. So it was Straight a bit. Up, right? It was it was a little bit crucial as as far as the yeah. game went. Yeah, and then I remember us going downhill and us peppering them, and we hit the bar, we hit things, we hit everything, and then I remember that, and then I remember the final whistle, and that summer, um, I think I ended up getting. That summer I went away maybe with Darren, like first time we went away uh, with our partners at the time or whatever, I don't know, but it didn't sink in, didn't sink in for, didn't sink in for about sort of three, four weeks that we were out of the league. Yeah, it was, uh, it was quite a sobering experience for all of us. I mean, for me, it was quite early in my <laughs> Barnet supporting days, but even then it was, 
you know, you could, you could tell the significance of it and how much that meant to the club. Um, I guess for you personally, you got voted player of the year that season, which yeah. for a, a, an ever-present in a defence that conceded 81 goals and got relegated is, that, is actually quite an achievement. Yeah. Um, is that a good thing? I'm just reading off stats here. I can't, I can't do yeah. it. But it's... Um, you talked a little bit about your contract and you talked about you know, your, your relationship with the supporters and the club and all the rest of it. Clearly, that was your last appearance for Barnet. Did you know at that point that that was your last appearance for the club or, or did it all just happen through the summer? Yeah, I had no idea. I had no idea what was happening. Um, I just signed a new three and a half year deal, if I remember rightly. I think I just signed a new three-year deal or something, um, just maybe halfway through the season before, after the back of having a decent season. I think I did. I signed a new deal. So I thought I might be tied in. Um, and then there was a couple of rumours about this happening and that happened. And I ended up Oxford with Mark Wright um, going over there for the, for the first year in the Kassam Stadium. Um, and that was a real, real difficult, dark time in my career going there. Um, I went there for obviously 150 grand. I went there to 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 be a uh, you know attacking fullback and hopefully kick on it. You know, if you look at the stadium when it was first being built and all the setup around it, and Mark Wright coming in as the manager, and you know, an historical club like Oxford that you thought were trying to get back into sort of, you know, go back up the leagues again. Everything, it looked great. And it was just so hard for me there. Um, I didn't, I, I struggled probably with Mark Wright a little bit. Obviously, he had a lot of, bit of trouble with the fans and, you know, he was making changes and trying to stamp his authority in the change room. And that was, a, that was another change room experience when you've got like... Um, uh, Phil Gray in there, the ex-Luton centre forward, Northern Ireland, international. We had some veterans in the Andy Scott, who went on to be manager at Brentford. Um, Robert, uh, Robert Quinn from... We had some sort of decent names, Andy Woodman. We had some big characters sort of in there. Um, and I wasn't playing to my standards and I found it really, really hard, to be honest with you. I had a real tough time there. And then Ian Atkins came in and it was even worse under Ian Atkins. Even worse. Um, but I had a rescue I, you know that, that for me playing playing as high as I could was always the thing that I wanted more than anything it was never about the money and that's when Colchester came in and the league above but on less money and I just absolutely swum at that opportunity to get out of there um, yeah it was a tough one I just didn't think I was ever going to turn it around at, at Oxford yeah it sounds on paper like like a, a, like a great move for you because you know you've, you've just moved away from a club albeit you know, I had a great experience at Barnet and, and you loved every minute of it by the sounds of it. And you've gone to a club who have just moved into a new stadium. They're a massive club, Oxford, you know, compared to Barnet, really. And, you know, you might be thinking, this is, this is a great opportunity for me to move up the leagues again. But clearly it didn't, it, it clearly didn't turn out that way. Not at all. I, I, I was completely underprepared for that move. It was something that I'd been wanting for a long period of time. It was a move that I wanted to play higher. I thought it was a brilliant stepping stone for me as a club. But to be honest with you, I think I was so set in the ways at Barnet and I was so sort of set in the ways in the way John still played. Um, and I was a sort of fan's favourite. So that guy had the comfortability of going week in, week out. I knew that I could probably have a couple of bad games and still be in the side. And 
and all those sort of things that I'd earned that over three years and then going into a new environment where the pressure was on straight away, seven and a half thousand people in the crowd. We didn't start great. They got after us that, you know, that was a group of fans that had high expectations and I loved it. I loved them. I respected them all. I thought it was what I wanted. I just wasn't performing to the level that I knew that I could. Um, and I think that was down to just probably not being ready for, for, for that move and not sort of having the right supports in place for that move, if that makes sense. Because I went from being a, a sort of a big fish in a little pond to a little fish in a big pond and, and, and struggled a bit, really, to be fair. Uh, I think I worked, I think I earned, I, I think I, I think I earned uh, their respect, the fans' respect at the end of it. And then there was a big hoo-ha, which was, at the playoffs when Oxford lost in the playoffs. I was at Colchester, which was a big, um, it, it, it was a bit of a rivalry at the time. We played them close to the playoffs and put in the press that I'd, I'd sent texts to one of the lads when they hadn't got into the playoffs and was being all this, that and the other, which that wasn't the case at all. There was some banter going around, it, but um, there, was no, there was no nastiness or anything like that from there. I was a kid, probably made a few mistakes along the way. I know I made quite a few mistakes along the way, probably. Um, but yeah, so kind of, it was it was a tough time there. Yeah, obviously you had a few, a few spells at a few different clubs in the Football League uh, after leaving Barnet. And we'll get on to the, what you did after that as well, because we'd quite like to hear about the stint abroad afterwards. But in terms of your other times in English football, um, was where, where did you have your best time? Did anywhere, do you feel you had anywhere as successful as, as Barnet or even more successful? Yeah, I think, listen, I think each I think each club I went to, I think, was more years in the game and more games being played, you know. And I think I think at the end of the career, I think I finished with just over maybe 600 games in all League Cup competition. Um, and it was only till I was 40, to be honest with you, I'm 43 now. It's probably only till I was 40 that I look back and have allowed myself to think, you know what, Stocks, you had an all right career, mate, considering you had 17 years and played that amount of games. But me being like I am and I'm quite hard on myself and, um, and and I never really looked at it as having a decent career, do you know what I mean? But I think when I look back at my time, Ox Oxford really was the only place that I found it quite difficult and I just didn't settle. I loved my time at Wickham. The fans were brilliant with me there. Paul Lambert, great squad. Um, I loved my time at Colchester. The system, the, the ground, it was a little bit like a Barnet feel, layer road close to the fans, you could get up and down, that they loved attacking fullbacks. Me and Doogie used to play on the he played on the left hand. They loved that. So that suited me. Port Vale was great. That was a big club. And I went into that one and learned from my time in Oxford. So this was a big club, Port Vale. Uh, came in as club captain. I was a little bit older. We didn't start very well. Uh, we were getting booed off and I went to the press and was like, listen, I don't mind you booing sort of me and our older players, but leave off the younger lads because um, they're still trying to sort of earn their trade. And then the next day, I think we played against Bradford. There was a winger, really fast Jamaican lad who was on the wing. I forget his name now. Nappy, Nappy Wells, was it, maybe? No, no, we'll find it. It was, what was his name? Um, anyway, he was playing and he broke. And we went in sort of about, he broke quick and he was rapping. And I was about 30 yards and I knew the only way I could get to him was to slide. And if I missed him, he, they would have been in on goal from the halfway line. No one was catching him. And I slid purposely and sort of caught him, took a yellow. But he was going in on goal and all the fans there were Port Vale fans. And they were all going off, off, off. <laughs> <laughs> they took a yellow. 
So I was like, oh no, All right, maybe I shouldn't have asked for that. But again, <laughs> even, with that, even with that relationship, I, I, I sort of worked through it. And I always had that relationship, or I felt with the fans that, you know what, you might make a mistake, um, but it will be an honest mistake and he'll work his ass off for, the, for whatever he's doing. Um, and like I said, so Port Bell was good, Wickham was good, Colchester was great, even Felons Varosh and Hungary, that was brilliant. Loved it over there. What an what what an education that was going playing in the Hungarian Premier League for a season. We were going to ask about that because obviously, so am I right in thinking it was Craig Short was the manager? Yeah. And so, yeah, is that how that came about? And yeah, what, yes. My understanding is they're pretty much the biggest team in Hungary. I think they just knocked Celtic out of the Champions League. The other Massive. Year. I didn't realize. I didn't. I did my homework, but I didn't realize until I got there and. I remember I just re- I just retired through my eye, although I didn't take the medical insurance in the end, so it didn't mean I was officially retired, but I stepped away. I was getting some bit of eye injuries and I had an op and I was coming to the end of my contract at Port Vale and Mickey Adams was brilliant. I had a clause in my contract that if I played 50 games in two seasons, I'd get a third year. I was never going to play. He came to me at the beginning of the season, was like, Stocks, listen, you're never going to hit 50 games. You're 32 now, the board, I'm new here. You know, we can't, those wages aren't going to happen. So I just said, well, Mickey, do me a favour. Take that clause out. Give me a season to, to earn it. Let me, let me play and work my arse off and, and see, see where we get to at the end of it. And then we came to Christmas and Mickey was brilliant. He said, listen, I can offer you a deal, but it's going to be on probably 50% of what you're on and everything like that. And at the time, I was going through a bit of a divorce. And so I was in a bit of a tough place with it. Um... So I said, well, I've got this, you know, I can retire. I've got, you know, I've got this problem with my eye. And, and so he, he helped me do that. The club were brilliant. And then I sat in the car park and literally the day I signed off all my forms and I sat in the car park at Port Vale in my car, he blew Astra at the time. <laughs> I was thinking, Shh, man, what am I going to do? I've just done a degree in sports journalism. I'd done some work placements at Sky Sports News, which was brilliant in the Northwest up in the Manchester. So I sort of, chipped into that but I got a call from Craig Short said do you want to come and play in Hungary we can give you from January we're in winter break but if you play from January through to May it's the back end of the season there's 15 games if you play 75% of those games we'll give you another sort of year so I went out there um, and it was unreal we missed the Europa League by six points I played every every minute of every game Um, Sheffield United owned them at the time so that's how that link was. And that's how it got me out to America because Sheffield United owned Hungary. They owned a team over in Australia, one in Belgium, I think. Um, and they were going to buy in America. So they was going to buy FC New York. But if you remember, Dean Windass scores a goal, Bradford against Sheffield United in, in the playoff final. So Sheffield United never went up. And my understanding is they didn't then go through with the deal in America to buy FC New York. But the relationship was already there. So after Felons Varosh a year there, I jumped over to America and played for FC New York, and then I was in the States for 10 years. That's where I've sort of been. I've been back 12 months. Yeah, so you played for Ca- Carolina Railhawks. Yeah, well. Carolina Railhawks, NCFD now. Well, <laughs> it was, to be fair. I played in the old USL for FC New York, which was based out of Rhode Island. That was that. They were one season. They got a franchise. They only last a year. I went over there. I was. I was married, my wife and kids were coming over. They said that we was going to get an apartment and we ended up in a five-bedroom house with 10 lads. And I turn up and like, <laughs> being a missus, like, what is going on? Okay, so, but that's kind of life, isn't it? I was ended up being there for nine months, lived in New York, was going in Manhattan. It was, you know, I was 
kid from Devon who's played football. All of a sudden, I've got an opportunity to be in Hungary for a year, playing for one of the biggest clubs there. It was unbelievable. Loved the fans there as well. Nuts, they were flans. That, that was the word I was going to use. That must, have, that must have been nuts. That was unreal. That was a bit of me, that. Then flares and nuts. Oh, yeah, they shut the city down when we played against Uge Pest. Yeah, nothing compared, nothing compared to Forest Green Rovers on a Tuesday, even though you wouldn't play them. <laughs> 600 people, and then we were there. We played in a derby against Utrecht for about, I think there were 17,000 people. They shut the city down. They had horses, tear gas. It was all happening. And we were driving to the ground. I've never experienced that in my entire career. And I played for 16 years. So for me, I'd savour those moments. Was there ever a moment, Sam, where... Um an opportunity to come back to Barnet might have been on the cards. Or, and, and if it had been, is it something you would have wanted to do or was best left where it was? I would have. Yeah, I would have. It's something that uh, I, I would love to have done. Um, I would have loved to have come back at some point. I think maybe if I stayed in the UK, maybe I could have been part of Stilly, Darren Curry, junior sort of coaching staff, potentially. And then obviously with now Rubes going on, I know he's now just left, which is a whole other story. You know, what a tragedy for me. Nothing against a new fella coming in. Um, I just know what he'd done to get that group where he got it and going through COVID and that and obviously being as close to him and how much the club meant to him and his art and what he wanted to do. He wanted to get that team back in the, in, in, into the, you know, to the pros. We, we've all got the big piece of our career is at that club. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. Obviously, now with the, with, with the new gaffer coming in, hopefully he can take it forward and do that. You know, I know he's been sort of successful in some places, but obviously I was a bit closer to that last year because of Darren and me be, him being like a brother to me. So I followed that whole playoff. So I was actually up at Stockport with the team there and we were starting to see a few games and stuff. Came to Yeovil, the home opener at the beginning of the season with the kids. They were, they were mascots on the field, which was quality. Tony looked after the kids there, my two kids. So... Yeah, we I think we spoke to Darren um, fairly early on in COVID. Actually, he came on and talked to us here, and um, I think we all watched the playoffs quite closely as well. And you could see, you could see in his post-match interview. I think after that, after we went out, how much it meant to him and, and where he was left. And I think most Barnet fans probably expected him to um, to carry on, but yeah, for whatever reason, that, that didn't happen. So. Yeah, so you think that, you know, there, there may have even been a chance that you might have ended up part of the, maybe the coaching side of that, if that had uh, played out differently? I certainly, if, it, if, if the opportunity had come along and it fitted for Darren and it fitted for Junior and it was the right fit, I would have jumped at the opportunity to come back and be part of him. And especially, you know, I think deep down in my heart, hearts, I was hoping that they would get promoted and that might open up a little bit of space and you never know what happens there and maybe start getting involved a little bit more would have been, the plan that that's what I want to do I've been away I've educated myself after playing I've been in a been in a lot of in a lot of academics I've done a lot of coaching courses I've done a lot of um you know sort of a lot of self-discovery and a lot of you know I'm big on the psychological aspect emotional intelligence all these sort of things and development my goal now is to to climb back up the ladder I've got my A license in America I've got my A license with the Welsh FA here um, I've just recently become the head of coaching at Clondudno in the second tier of Welsh, but I did all my education with, with, with the Welsh. I've got great connections there with the Welsh FA. Um, met some brilliant people in the coaching education process there. And whilst being a coaching educator myself, uh, a friend of mine offered me an opportunity to go back in there. So head of coaching at Clondudno, which is great, overseeing the academy there. And 
trying to get them back into the, uh, the Welsh Prem. Then I've recently gone into uh, Fleetwood here as well in their academy and doing some work in there just to, just to try and keep my eye on all the ages and just keep fresh and see trends and what's happening with the youngers and what's happening with the olders and how does that all fit in. But my dream, my dream is to be a sporting director. That's, what, that's the path that I'm on. That's what I want to do. Um, I love building a team. I love being part of a team. I think there's people that are a lot more clever than me than the experts in their fields that, uh, you know, that I think I've met along the way that I'd like to pull together and then maybe get involved in a club at somewhere down the line. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting you talk about your relationship with people that you played football with 20 years ago, you know, how close you are with, with Darren and, and the rest of it. It's, um, you know, Darren we had on the podcast while he was still manager of the club and he spoke very passionately about what he was doing and, you know, he spoke, you know, very well about his, his memories of Barnet when he played for the club and, and what he wanted to do with the club now. Um, we've spoken to a few people about, you know, the difference between the club then and the difference between the club now. And, you know, you talked about how you've been to a few games with, with, with Darren and you said you went to the Oval game and, and everything else. Do you see that there's much difference between the club that you played for and the club that, that, that it now is uh, between 100%. Underhill and the Hive? 100%. And for me, you know, there's no heartbeat. There's no heartbeat. When you go around the hive, when you go around the place, the training ground on a match day, you know, it's, there's no like heartbeat in there. And I think for whatever reason, when you've had 28 managers or whatever it is in X amount of years, each bringing in their idea, each bringing in their own little piece, even if, even if one of those ideas that they bring in, bearing in mind being wanting to be a manager in that, that, in that, in that realm myself, if I went into a club, there's 56 million ideas I'd like to implement, let alone one. But if one of those stick, even over the last 13 years, that's 28 different identities. Or, you know, if I've got my, if I've got my managers right, I know it's sort of in and up and around there. There's, you know, 20 plus managers identity in there. It's, it's impossible. You know, that, that, that now for me needs a reset and a rebuild. And it needs to have a long-standing person in there. And that's why I thought Darren was the person for that. I think that, a club like Barnet, you've got to get the results right first because it's performance-based and then you can dive down into your player development and all your different things. But there's such a job to start with, just to, with the first team. But I think it needed a two, three, four-year plan and I think it was a club that sort of fitted in quite well at that time and he could have moved that forward. But for me, dare I say it, when I was at Barnet, I felt part of Barnet. You know, coming back to the club, and, you know, having that, the period of time and the relationship that I did have with them, um, you know, that seems to be a little bit lost, dare I say, at the moment, which is quite sad. No, I think... Go on, Greg. I, say, I think it's interesting that you use the word identity, um, because I think that, for us, that's the, that's the big thing. I think that, um, you know, funnily enough, if you asked me 10 years ago, do I think, you know, the name of a club or the colour of, of the kit or whatever was more important than the location... I probably would have said, yeah, those things are more important. But I think, you know, and maybe it's not one for here. There'd probably be better places to have the conversation without upsetting too many other people. But I do think that, um, I do think it lacks identity, or at least the identity changed. Maybe it's not fair to say it lacks identity. Maybe there's, there's probably people that love the new identity, but it has changed. And I think that means the people that maybe were close to the old identity find it a little bit more difficult uh, with what they find there now. No, and I, and I think, you know, look, God, when we were playing at Underhill, and we, if we had predicted, if I had predicted that, you know, Tony would have done what he'd done and he would have got the eye and we'd have had this facility and we could have 
gone through, you know, time and seen that, we'd have all been, wow, yeah, I can see the big picture. But but Underhill was Underhill. So I think you've got to give credit to Tony for what he's built. Um, the hard work, the 26, seven years in there, I think is so ingrained in it now that, you know, I think it's difficult. I think it's difficult to see everything and what's really important. There's so many different businesses with inside Barnet now that it's tough, but I'm a true believer and I'm a big believer that if you want to be a successful, and I'm not telling Tony Dead to be business, let's get this dead straight because he's bloody hugely successful. I just think that if you associate with a football club, the most important thing is the football on the field and then the relationship that that football has with its fans and community because ultimately the fans in the community are going to be the one that invests back into it. And I think that's where everything needs to point to. And I don't think it has always been that main focus potentially at Barnet. You know, I think that and that's probably, if you take your eye off the ball, that's where it loses that little bit of personality and that little bit of interaction with the fans. And then it's hard to get back. And I've only been around it like three, four times. And I, I'm a, like I said to you, I, for me, it's, it's a feeling. And, and I had that feeling at Underhill and everybody had it. Nobody really wanted to come and play at Underhill. That's why we loved it. We always had up a, up a chance. We always leveled a decent side, a decent football inside coming to Underhill on a Saturday up the hill with the wind would level them out and give us a chance. Now, I understand that, that the game's changed, but you've got to try and keep that community in it. That's difficult. I think that's really hard to do when there's a constantly ever-changing identity and turnover within the club. No, I think you're right. And I think you know, I completely agree with you about the point about Darren as well. We... we um... So James, Ian and myself, we're all people that haven't really or never really made the move to the hive. We, we just haven't. We're, we're maybe call us Philistines or whatever you want to say. But we're still back. We're still lost in the past, I think. And we sat down and we had an hour and a half or a bit, maybe a bit longer with Darren Curry. And um, I think all of us felt like, do you know what? Maybe this is something we could believe in again. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, look, I'm sure there's good reasons and I don't want to go into what they are, why it didn't work out. And, you know, that's that's the that's private between the people involved. That's fair enough. But certainly I think as an outcome, it's a shame. And I think a lot of people feel it's a shame that it wasn't possible for him to stay on in, in some way. I, I've, I totally agree with that. I think it's a huge loss. And I think it's, you know, he's, he's one of the probably up and coming coaches in the game. You know, I think there's aspects of his coaching that he'll want to progress and move forward on. And, and I think that he, he was hoping to do that inside the club. But as we've mentioned before, I think, you know, whenever you Whenever you manage a football club, you're always managing. You've got to manage up, you've got to manage down, you've got to manage laterally across it all. That's part of what we all get taught. That's the life of it. And I think that, you know, I think that sometimes that balance between what you're having to manage and what actually should be focused on to get success on the field can be quite wearing. I, th I think that's right. And I think, you know, the, that rapport with the fans is... I, of course, it's easy for me to sit here as a fan saying that we're the most important thing, that and the other. You know, fine. But, but I think um, when he understood the importance of walking the players back through the bar and things like that, he understood that if uh, there's a relationship between the players and the fans, they're going to give them a little bit more leeway when it's not going right. And they're going to encourage yeah. them positive rather than negative and complain. And, and that actually, you know, you've said it about young players. You said you have that situation at Port Vale where you know, those young players, not just about their careers, but what they're going to do for the club. If, you're yeah. get, if you get behind them, you're going to get a much better outcome. Um, yeah. And uh, I think Darren understood that and that was important. Well, could have been very big for the club as well, but yeah, it is so. very 
Yeah, we, 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 we talked about a lot of stuff here and, uh, you know, there's a lot we've gone through. Uh, clearly, you've spoken with a, a great deal of affection about Barnet. Was there, was there any one memory or one story that you've got that could sum up your time at Barnet and, 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 uh, and talk about how good it was for you? Oh, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a tough one. I think, um, I think, I, I don't think there's any one memory of it. I just think that it's a part, it's, it, it's a part of my career that I'll always go back to that enabled me to crack on. It was such a great place for where I was at coming out of the club that I was at needing to man up a bit. I'm coming from the country now being in North London uh, all these different things at that moment in my life shaped me moving forward. Um, and yeah, I, I truly, truly think that probably when I look at my, when I look at my career, I think about that goal that I scored at Boothby Park. And I think about the diving header that I got a few weeks afterwards that came off my shoulder at Mansfield that looped <laughs> my first home goal. I think those were key moments, but I think what I'm most proud of is the amount of games that I've played in potentially a short period of time, um, knowing the intensity of the training that we had to deal with as well. And it wasn't obviously managed like it is now. And all of those great things set me up big time. I learned so much about that. That's what helped me crack on to, to play for as long as I did. Oh, look, we said it to everyone, Sam. If you find yourself in North London again anytime soon, even maybe down the Hive or something like that, Said it to everyone. We'd love to buy you a pint and say thank you uh, for uh, for all the times you did it. And we said the same to Warren Goodhind and Darren Curry. So maybe there'll be a reunion in there somewhere. Oh, I hope so, mate. We keep saying we're going to get together, so it'll be no better time. We've got to do it. Dal came up a couple of weeks ago. Actually, he was just in Liverpool up here. I was helping him with some bits for you know as he pulls together now all of his philosophy and method and all those good things that he's now working. He's gone back to the books and back into the sort of laboratory at the minute whilst he's between jobs to better himself, which is what good coaches do. So that's good. And I'm hoping to meet up with, uh, with Woz soon. I ain't seen Woz for a bit, man. Okay. Well, Sam, thanks very much for your time today, uh, for your years of service, obviously at Barnet, um, and for taking the time to go through those stories and memories with us. Uh, that's going to be a really good listen. And I'm sure lots of Barnet fans will have enjoyed that. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And I hope it, it weren't too boring reminiscing back over some of the stuff, but it was great to go down there again. Um, and you know what it's like, talk for hours about it. You know what I mean? It was great days, great stories, great days. I'll take Robinson on. He's oh, And there's goal of the season, Frank Murphy. Giuliano Grazioli. Oh, absolute quality. I'm sure most people would say I was mad. Yeah.